Hello and uh, welcome to another exciting edition of Pep Talk, the Persuasive Evangelism Podcast. I'm Andy Bannister and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Christy Mayer. Christy, how are you doing today? Hey Andy, doing very well indeed, thank you. Greetings from London as ever. I was going to ask, where are you down in London? And it's a lovely evening up here in Scotland. Um, but the temperature in London and Scotland is nothing, I imagine, compared to the temperature where our guest comes to us uh, today from. Because coming to us all the way from California, we have Greg Gansel. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I won't ask you what the temperature is in California because all of our British listeners, of whom there are many, will hang up in disgust. Um, but great to have you with us. You're a professor out there at Biola uh, University, uh, well known as an author and a communicator and a thinker on, a, on the Christian faith. And I guess the, the question I'd like to sort of throw your way uh, to get us started with, I think one of the things um, I've loved about some of your recent work, a big idea for you, has been this idea of you know, how the how the gospel, how the message of Jesus really connects to our people's deepest desires. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, we can feel that we've almost got to sort of, you know, wrestle people into a position where we can perhaps bang them over the head with an argument and then drag them through the front door of the church. But the thing, I love the approach that you've been taking, showing that actually there's a really interesting conversation to be had, showing people that the, the gospel makes sense of so many things they're already drawn to. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, uh, the, the idea struck me that uh, many people in our secular culture have the notion that Christianity is false and it's a really good thing it's false. Mm-hmm. And, and I decided I was going to spend some time going after the second part. You know, uh, apologists uh, have been very good at defending the truth of Christianity, but it turns out that a lot of people don't care that much that it's true because they don't see it connecting to things that matter. The big objection, I think, to the gospel is that Jesus is completely irrelevant to anything I care about. But if we think about the Christian story, we see that's actually not true. So it's up to us to illuminate the Christian story for people so they can see that it connects to the things that matter most to them. This is wonderful. And this is something that you um, go into some detail in your latest book, don't you, Our Deepest Desires. Um, is this, how about, how do we actually go about exposing these kind of universal longings when we're in a conversations with our friends? Because I think it's one of those things which I think, oh, yes, this is amazing. We all have these things, but it feels like quite a, an abstract thing to try and, you know, bring into the conversation or even expose. How, how might we go about that? Well, I think what we want to do in a conversation is is peel back the layers of the superficial. Mm. We, be, we begin conversations with people talking about superficial things. And of course, that's perfectly appropriate. But we want to peel back the layers. And some of the ways we can do that is to talk about our own desires, right? Mm. Uh, frame certain discussions around, you know, I'm trying I'm, – I'm, I'm trying – to um, be a good parent. What does it mean to love my kids well or to love my spouse well? And this connects to what does it mean to be human? So I I think by probing in that direction and doing it more confessionally first, we we can move to a different level than the superficial. Mm. I think um, one of the things that uh, you know struck me as I as I read that book, Greg, is I mean I'm a I'm a kind of hiker and mountaineer as a hobby, and you know I've had numerous conversations with people over the years, particularly around you know one of the topics you talk about in that book is the idea of beauty, mm-hmm. but actually 
but actually the Christian worldview, the Christian faith, it makes more sense of that. And I found fascinating how many times I've stood on mountaintops and people have gone, wow, what an amazing view. It's incredibly beautiful. And you sort of turned to them, started the conversation around that. But help us perhaps think that one through. How, how is it precisely the Christian faith makes perhaps, you know, more sense of, of beauty? I mean, can't an atheist simply come along and go, well, yeah, you know, beauty is just sort of an evolved response to, to nature. How, how is it perhaps on that example uh, of beauty that the, the Christian faith offers is much, much more than that. Well, beauty is a great way to get into this kind of conversation because it can be with your hiking and mountain climbing or as simple as um, music. Why does music move us so much? I think that what the Christian story brings to beauty is a, is a sense that God is an artist, right? God's creativity in creation is artistic. We often think of God's creation um, only in the context of disputing about origins. But that is kind of a trivial discussion compared to um, the fact that God created for a reason and he creates with extravagant generosity. That's why there are so many billions of galaxies. And um, he is an artist. It's beautiful. He's not simply an engineer, but he's an artist. And the second thing is that God made us to be artists. Our artistic impulse is grounded in the fact that we're made in the image of God. So in short, we're, we don't have this artistic impulse to to try to carve out meaning from a meaningless universe, but it's part of the meaning of being human that's been given to us. Hmm. This, uh, this really reminds me of Blaise Pascal, you know, when he says to present the gospel in such a way that good people wish that it were true and then show that it is. Exactly. Exactly. Pascal was, was onto this a long time ago. I, I think since Pascal, um, we Christians have have been fighting, so to speak, for the truth of the gospel. And we've allowed um, the goodness and beauty of the gospel to take a back seat. But the time is ripe for us to um, um, highlight those aspects. Because mm. that's, that's something else, isn't it, that you, you talk about is the, the longing, the human longing for freedom and how it is yes. that this, this connects. How and that's just that's a topic which is uh we just see this every day in society don't we these these kind of questions of authority power uh the interplay between the two and then freedom autonomy how how would we actually go about connecting the gospel to i mean sorry these longings to the gospel i mean how do they find their fulfillment well if we are in a conversation about freedom we can say that the Christian story is a story of freedom, right? God made us for a purpose, and, and we are free when we live into that purpose. And the purposes for which God made us are the very things we want. Mm. We want to be a certain kind of person. We, we want to be virtuous. We want mm. to be generous. You could take the pause list and the fruit of the Spirit and pull it out of the Bible and ask anybody, do you want a life characterized this way? <laughs> Everybody's going to say yes. And so we, it's a very small connection to connect the dots between the life that Jesus calls us to and the freedom that everybody recognizes as a human being. So would that be kind of saying, here's the good life, here's the good life that you instinctively want, and here it is? Exactly. And then the Christian story explains 
where it comes from, why it's hard. And that's when we get into our sin and our rebellion against God. But it, it, it is held forth as a vision of life. Hmm. We see this in John's gospel. Here's another way we can talk about this. Christians normally think of the Christian story in terms of forgiveness, which of course is a central theme. But in John's gospel, the English word forgiveness is only found in one verse. But 30 times the word life is used to talk about who Jesus is and what he brings. And, and if we can say, you know, in the, in the New Testament itself, the, the big word to describe the Christian story is life. And of course, everybody responds to a full and sane and whole life. I think what I, I love about this this whole approach, um, Greg, I mean, particularly, you know, weaving back in that, that Blaise Pascal idea that you and Christy were just talking about about there is I think when I when I kind of, when I kind of started out in uh, evangelism, I kind of thought that my job was, you know, sort of bang somebody over the head with with, with an argument, sort of almost, you know, sort of force them intellectually into into realizing that, that the gospel was was true, and it never worked. Mm-hmm. And then I've now had the privilege of, you know, teaching evangelism to so many people who are not wired intellectually. And I think what I like about the approach that you're outlining here is actually it takes a lot of the pressure off because people are already drawn to these things, right? People, as you say, are already drawn to the idea of life and to beauty and to those other kind of things. And you have much more sort of connecting the dots of people and saying, you know, it's absolutely right. Those things you've seen are wonderful. And look, here's a suggestion that maybe the Christian faith makes more sense than it's almost a lower pressure approach, right? Exactly. And not only is that lower pressure, well, maybe it's, it is lower pressure because we're not entering a conflict of worldviews here. We're, we're not saying, look, what you believe is false, what I believe is true. And that that can tend to put people in an adversarial relation. But we're, we're coming alongside people because we're all human beings and we long for goodness and beauty and freedom and truth. And, and so we can say, let's, let's think about these things together. So it's a much more uh, relational kind of discussion that we can have. I also think there's a there's a degree too to which the approach you're outlining here connects with uh, your your earlier book. And we were chatting before we started recording the show, and I was sort of saying to you that I think you know a book your earlier book was was really quite a big influence on me, A Reasonable God, in which you talk about the idea of the um, the kind of sort of fittingness argument. I think you call it, which mm-hmm. is in similar kind of territory, right? Of going look at all these different pieces of evidence and all of these different pieces of the jigsaw in a sense which worldview, which belief system best explains them? Where do they best fit? And then showing that perhaps, you know, Christianity is where they fit far better than, than atheism or, you know, Islam or whatever the other worldviews are out there. So I love the way these these two ideas that you've been working with through your writing career kind of fit together so well. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, the fittingness argument is called an, an inference to the best explanation. And and the reason it's fruitful to, to emphasize this, I believe, is that when we learn philosophy, in, we, we frame arguments as deductive arguments. And that can be really helpful to analyze the structure of our thought. But the real evidential case for any position, whether it's a historical theory or, or a broad scientific theory, the real case is evidential, not deductive. And the fittingness argument kind of is a way to capture this. I often use the illustration of a, of a detective at a crime scene. 
right? The detective picks up a whole bunch of bits of information and some of it becomes evidence. And then the detective tries to figure out what is the story that explains all this evidence. And it might be the fingerprint, the eyewitness, there might be a threat. And you have all of these things. And then you get this story that says, well, the best explanation is that Bob did the crime and Bob gets arrested. And then your detective show is over. Um, and so that's really how we think about these things more hmm. than individual deductive arguments. How would I was just thinking about that in a, such a good example of um, we find ourselves, you know, thrown into this universe. How do we best um, explain who we are, why we're here, purpose kind of things? But I was just thinking that um, I've been reading a lot recently that today, you know, we're living in this post-truth society. People are really apathetic, um, arguably towards truth claims and appeals to kind of like the ultimate uh, goals of things. How would we help those who who would say, well, you know, yeah, I see the clues, but I don't really need to piece them together. I can just, you know, I can just leave them there. It's 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 fine. My life is working for me. We don't need to talk about this um, journey towards um, the 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 object of these ultimate longings. I'm I'm fine as I am. How would how would you help provoke them? What what we're doing in these conversations is we're saying. Every human being has a project, and that's we're all trying to make sense out of our lives. We're trying to make sense out of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And if if someone is saying, "Look, I, you know, I'm perfectly content with my life," it's not our role or job to say, "No, you're not," or "You shouldn't be content with your life." I think that's a point of of conversation. You could say, "Well." Tell me about that, right? How how does how does your view help you think about your life of meaning, or how does it give you hope for the future? Um, and and some of these points, I think the contrast between the Christian story and some kind of secular story will come out pretty well. For example, I think hope is a virtue whose time has come. We live in a situation, we have, we have generations of people that are um, paralyzed with hopelessness. Mm. And so someone might be content with her life, but she might have made peace with a degree of hopelessness. We can pursue mm. that conversation simply by asking, well, that's great. Tell me about um, what your grounds of hope for the future are. And, and, yeah. and it might elicit this, this sense that, well, I'm content, but I really don't mm. have hope. One of the things I like about that uh, that approach, Greg, we've talked about this uh, quite a few times on this on this uh, podcast over the last few weeks, is that I think there's a real need for Christians to learn how to have good conversations about faith. Sometimes, particularly for those of us who perhaps are more drawn to to apologetics and to argument, you know, we get into a mode where we see you know non Christian friends. Their job is to sit there and say nothing, and our job is to download arguments onto them. Right. But your approach, what I like, is it leads more naturally to a conversation. You know, so I mean, as you say, everyone's looking for hope, and what a great conversation starter to somebody say hey you know we live in difficult times politics yep. and challenges in the environment and so forth hey where do you find hope and then we can listen to our friend we don't need to be threatened uh, exactly. because we know that the christian worldview is a much more secure foundation and then there's much more chance they'll turn to us right and say well yeah, yeah. hope is difficult well, where do you find hope and, yeah. and then you're away right yeah i mean if i could leave your listeners with a slogan it would be 
any conversation that continues is a successful conversation. Mm, that's so good. Oh, I love that. And, and that's the goal. Hmm. So obviously, I mean, you've done as well as uh, as, as writing and, and so forth. You've done a lot of ministry, Greg. You've spent a lot of your time on university campuses. Before you were at Biola, you were out there at, at Yale. How have you found just practically, you know, we've talked a little about the, about the ideas and the framework over the last kind of sort of 16 and a half minutes or so. But how have you found some of this actually plays out in conversations uh, on the ground, perhaps particularly with university students and that age group, where some people might say, oh, gosh, they're so post-Christian, they're unreachable. I don't think that's true. I don't think you think that's true. How some of this played out when you've actually, you know, gone out there, as it were, and put this to, to work on the ground? Well, I think I think it plays out very well. I mean, the university campus is a great place for ministry, um, you you want to build relationships. I was I was an adjunct teacher at the philosophy department at Yale for about nine years, and I found a lot of these themes could come up in my classes. So I would write on the board the sentence, "What kind of person should I be?" Mm-hmm. and explain to the students this is the most important philosophical question. It connects with metaphysics, ethics, political philosophy, because I wanted my students to lie awake at night and worry about that question. And, and um, actually, they did. It, it was helpful to see the students really beginning to wrestle with virtue and how do I become a virtuous person. And, and in these conversations, now this is in the classroom, so I'm, I, I'm not able to be as explicitly Christian as I can be in other uh, contexts, although it, it, you, you can be fairly explicit in certain contexts, um, students were attracted to virtue. When we began to talk about what, how do we become generous, um, they, they respond. And, and it's part of this vision of holding forth the, a Christian view as a compelling uh, vision of life. This is this is so helpful to hear because it's one of the things that um, we just see every day, don't we? That what does it mean to be a good person? Virtue formation. We all we all have that that deep hunger w- within each of us to to want to be the best self that we can possibly <laughs> be in the world. We keep coming up against that adage. How would you? I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier on about a good conversation, the success of it is based on if we continue that conversation. What does it like to continue that conversation in in terms of the virtue formation with our friends, for example? So if my fr- if, if one of my friends, um, she'd call herself, well, she is a vegan. And one of the things I'm thinking through is how do I best connect her desire for um, a life that's based on compassion and kindness to Christ when the two seem completely incompatible? How do I best continue the conversation with her along these virtue formation lines that you've just suggested that you're experiencing with your students? Well, I think the first thing is we, we um, have a posture of affirmation, right? Any, any attempt that a person has anytime they're thinking, boy, how, what, what should I be? What should I do? We want mm-hmm. to affirm that. Um, we don't want to criticize the content of their understanding of virtue. Um, you know, we don't put that under a microscope and dissect it because we're more interested in the journey they're on. So we affirm their, um, a person's desire to choose and live wisely and choose and 
live well. And then we come alongside and continue this conversation. So you might ask, okay, so compassion is very important to you. I agree with that. Right. Where does compassion fit in your view of the universe? Right. And if you've got a naturalistic person, it's it's going to be it's not that there's no room for compassion in that view, but it's going to be much more of a shallow thing in the universe. Whereas in a Christian story, of course, compassion is very deep because the fundamental reality of the universe, God himself, is compassionate. So so we can help capture a person's values through affirming them and then and then eliciting how they think in terms of their worldview and then hold forth that the gospel is a richer vision of the very life that they want. I think that's, uh, that's a great place to, to end. Greg, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time well, with us today. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, hugely encourage listeners to just put some of these ideas into practice. Talk to your friends, listen, find out what their deepest desires are. And then as Greg has, has shared, find ways to show people how that just really beautifully connects to the gospel and see how those conversations go. Well, thank you for spending 20 minutes with us. And uh, Christy and I will be with uh, you and another guest. Uh, on the next episode of Pep Talk. Look forward to you joining us then. Hello, everybody. I just wanted to take a moment to uh, let you know, if you weren't aware, that the Pep Talk podcast is produced by the Solas Centre for Public Christianity. As an organisation, we're committed both to sharing the, uh, the gospel outside the four walls of the church, but also teaching and training and equipping Christians uh, for evangelism with great resources like this podcast. You can join with us and help us do more of this uh, hugely important work by supporting Solas. Just visit the Solas website at solas-cpc.org, click on the donate button and you can become a monthly donor for as little as £3 a month. And as a thank you for your support, we will send you a copy of my book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, or you can choose a copy of Christy Mayer's book, uh, More Truth, and uh, you can get behind the work that we do, both in terms of training and evangelism. Hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next time.